0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to the Health Report podcast with me, Tegan Taylor, filling in for Norman Swan. Coming up on this week's show, they've been five years in the making, but salt reformulation guidelines from the government will only cut Australian sodium intake by a tiny amount, whereas most Australians need to halve the amount they eat. And how effective are the interventions we have for risky drinking? And are they being used enough? But first, yes, we're still navigating a pandemic, but that doesn't mean people have stopped having babies. And for parents who choose to breastfeed, that means pressing questions around whether it's safe to get a coronavirus vaccine while breastfeeding. But the evidence people want to be able to make these decisions is often lacking because breastfeeding parents are often excluded from clinical trials. Carlene Gribble from the School of Nursing and and Midwifery at Western Sydney University presented this week in a panel discussion about COVID-19 policy hosted by the Australian Breastfeeding Association. Carlene, welcome to The Health Report.
2: Hi, Tegan. It's lovely to speak with you.
1: So, Carlene, what's the current situation for breastfeeding parents when they're weighing up the risks and benefits of getting a COVID vaccine?
2: Well, it's been a bit tricky. Um, Currently in Australia we don't have the vaccine coming out quite yet. But in some other places in the world, they have been distributing the vaccine uh, for quite some time. There's been 128 million uh, vaccines given. um, And uh, unfortunately, decisions were difficult to make because pregnant and breastfeeding women weren't included in COVID-19 vaccine trials.
1: So high-risk groups are often excluded from vaccine trials. Are vaccine developers wrongly classifying breastfeeding parents as being high-risk?
2: Well, we've got got a bit of a history here um, that's behind all of this. Uh, Initially, uh, with our medical research, it was actually really all based on the bodies of male people. And so women in general were excluded from trials. Uh, It's gradually gotten better. Um, Now it's pretty much a requirement that at least when you come to the final stages of human trials that you need to have females in it but many trials will exclude pregnant and breastfeeding women because there's concern that that might pose a risk to their fetus or their baby and so uh, the problem with that is though is that then when a drug is approved or a vaccine is approved um, they haven't been because that they- haven't been included in the trials, there's limited evidence on which to actually uh, provide to health professionals and to mothers in order to make decisions about whether they should have that treatment or they should have that vaccination.
1: So, in Australia, we've got the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Obstetrician and Gynecologists, and global bodies like the World Health Organization saying, yes, get the vaccine if you're a breastfeeding parent. But I understand that policymakers in the UK and the US were divided. And what sort of messages does this send to parents when there are differences of opinion globally?
2: Well, well, I mean, this was really quite a big issue in the UK. Uh, as you said, initially, um, the vaccine was not approved for uh, for pregnant or breastfeeding women. Uh, and so when they were bringing it out, they were prioritising health workers to receive the vaccination to start with. But just like in Australia, 75 to 80% of health workers are female um, and a lot of them were pregnant or breastfeeding and so... Um, They were in a situation where some of them were told, uh, you need the vaccination to be able to work, but you can't have the vaccination while you're breastfeeding. And so women were being advised to stop breastfeeding in order to be vaccinated. Um, They did back away from that uh, after a period of time. But, um, you know, I mean, these things are difficult to undo because people hear that there must be a risk. There must be a real reason why they didn't approve it in the first place.
1: Right, so there's like a broad society-level communication problem and then at the individual level you've got people who perhaps are are maybe not making the, the safest choice for themselves or their babies by either stopping breastfeeding or not getting a vaccine.
2: Yeah, it's about weighing risk. And, I mean, it is... When it comes to breastfeeding and a vaccine like the COVID-19 vaccines that have been approved, uh, we're not looking at a a really significant risk. Um, The trials did not include breastfeeding women, but these are not live vaccines. And the only vaccines that have ever been contraindicated for breastfeeding women have been live vaccines. So uh, we've got the World Health Organization, they've come out and, you know, saying um, that there's... we we can't see any mechanism by which vaccination could be harmful for a breastfed infant. And they have recommended that women who are breastfeeding be vaccinated just the same as what they would be if they weren't.
1: How do we safely include breastfeeding women in clinical trials? Like this isn't just an issue during COVID times. It's As you say, it's something that's more pervasive than that. Well,
2: I think there's there's really been a move towards understanding that this really needs to happen. Even in this pandemic, um, back in March, uh, quite early on, there were um, bodies lobbying uh, authorities to make sure that they included pregnant and breastfeeding women in vaccine trials. Um, Even in Australia, there were discussions happening here, um, but it, it just didn't happen. We, sh- we need to learn from our mistakes like we are, because we need to know. We need this information. It's not, um, we shouldn't be attempting to protect um, mothers and infants uh, from research, but with research. The research itself is actually something that's going to help them.
1: So if there are people listening now and they're not sure where to go for information, what are some trusted sources uh, for breastfeeding parents making decisions about vaccines?
2: Uh, well, you can get information um, from from sources like the World Health Organisation. They've got quite a lot out there. Um, we're expecting literally any day um, to have guidance from the Australian government around what their plans are for vaccination for pregnant women, um, breastfeeding women. So, um, so that information is going to be forthcoming. Uh, we're very fortunate here that we are in the position where we are not in an enormous rush. So I don't think there's you know, there's going to be time for people to be able to make decisions. Um, the information is going to be there. Um, one of the things where they one of the places where they can could get some information. You mentioned um, the panel discussion that I was a part of last week. Uh, that's now online um, at the Australian Breastfeeding Association. It's got some information there about weighing risk and policy development and research. Um, and also um, for health professionals there on how to speak with mothers about vaccination. So, so that might be a useful place for people to go. There's lots of reputable information out there. Um, people need to know it. It's reasonable to be concerned and to have questions. And you need, you know, if you have concerns or questions, it's a good thing to speak with a health professional that you trust um, who can provide you with the information that you need in a way that's going to work for you.
1: Carleen Gribble, thank you so much for joining us on the Health Report. Thank you. Carleen Gribble is an Associate Adjunct Professor at the School of Nursing and and Midwifery at Western Sydney University. I'm Tegan Taylor and you're listening to The Health Report and just staying with COVID-19 and breastfeeding, what do we know about what passes through the milk to baby in terms of immunity? Like Like with so many things, it's an emerging field of research and one that's so far yielding encouraging results. Valerie Verhasselt from University of Western Australia is studying this and I spoke to her earlier. We're a year into the COVID-19 pandemic now. So what do we know about whether a mother's breast milk contains antibodies or even contains the virus itself?
3: Well, of course, this is a key question today, because if even there is pandemic, there will still be uh, new babies and mother who uh, fortunately want to breastfeed. So yes, today we can say zero chance of getting the virus into the milk in, in a way that could infect the baby. How do Some we know people- that? Well, that has been addressed because taking milk from infected mother, even when there was some uh, RNA from the virus, then it was checked whether it could infect cells and it was not able to infect cells. And also there has not been any case where it was proven that the baby was infected during breastfeeding. So that really now is, uh, I would say, 99.9% sure there won't be any possibility of getting infected.
1: So that's the research that has been done so far and you've just received some funding to look at this in more detail. So what are you going to be looking at specifically?
3: I'm going to look more at the benefits of breast milk. Now that we, we know there is a is, let's say, zero risk about transmission, what do we know about the protection that can be uh, afforded through breast milk against COVID-19? And so there is already research done uh, showing that antibodies are indeed present in the milk of infected mother and that this antibody may be beneficial to uh, prevent infection. Um, but there is much more research that needs to be done. So I have access to a fantastic cohort of milk samples that were collected from Spain uh, by uh, Juan Rodriguez in Madrid. And we have um, 25 mother an infected, 25 mother infected. And we will follow milk sample from 10 time points where we will analyze the protective effect and document how the antibody happens, how long they stay, what is important for them to neutralise the virus, what control their level, what is associated with their protection and also the milk of non-infected mother probably is protective.
1: So you're looking at milk samples, are they frozen or are you getting some sort of readout of the molecular structure? What sort of access do you have to these samples?
3: Yeah, the sample, of course, that we received are frozen.
1: They've been transported from Spain
3: and here in Western Australia. As you know, we, we don't have many samples available, fortunately, because very low infection rates. So that's why I had access to those uh, milk samples from Spain. Uh, but we know that most of the properties of breast milk are maintained upon uh, freezing. So what we are mainly looking at is uh, the detection of those antibodies. And uh, a hypothesis that I've been uh, exploring with my team for many years is not only looking for antibodies, but also looking at the possibility that milk could vaccinate the child. So even if you would not have the virus, you can have some particle of the virus, and that might be a way to stimulate the immune system of a baby. And that is certainly something that I'm going to look at.
1: What about vaccinated mothers, are you going to look and see whether that immunity passes to the baby?
3: At the moment, I don't have any sample from vaccinated mother. I know colleagues in the U.S. that are exploring that at the moment, where mother get vaccinated. So here we, we don't have uh, at the moment a lactating mother that are vaccinated. So I don't have access to those sample. But uh, from other vaccine like for influenza or for pertussis that is recommended to be uh, given to pregnant mother, we know that antibodies are in increase upon maternal vaccination, and these go into the serum and also into the milk. So that is already now, so it's really expected that this vaccination will lead to increased immunity transfer to the milk.
1: So given that we do already know that some immunity passes through milk for other diseases, why is it important to study COVID-19 specifically?
3: We can uh, guess, but we need to be sure and to understand each virus has its own specificities. For sure, the most that has been studied is regarding HIV. And that is a fantastic example. How good is breast milk? So we know a lot from HIV that even though the virus is transferred to the milk, the protective effect of milk against infection and even against HIV extremely strong with 85% of the children that receive breast milk containing HIV, in fact, get the immunity and never get infected. So that is for HIV. Um, What is about COVID? Well, this is totally new. So so we can extrapolate from another disease. We can guess, we can speculate, we, we really believe it, but we need to prove it.
1: You mentioned before that even in parents who aren't infected that there might be some protective value in breast milk. Can you expand on that a bit more?
3: That is certainly, uh, I think, where the research needs to be done now. So breast milk is a, a food, but it's much more than a food. It contains hundreds of molecules that can uh, destroy virus, microbes in general, and in addition of destroying the virus, like uh, you have natural antibiotics in breast milk, like toferrin, lysozyme, that is a natural large spectrum antibiotics, but uh, they have the advantage to be also given to the newborns in the presence of other molecules that are good for your gut microbiota, molecules that strengthen the barrier. And that's what you need when you have an infection, is to have a good barrier. That's the first difference. For a virus not to come in, it's having a good gut barrier. And the milk contains many factors that reinforce the barrier. So that is certainly a, a great way also breast milk can prevent.
1: Professor Valerie Verhasselt holds the Larson-Rosenquist Chair in Human Lactology at the School of Molecular Science at the University of Western Australia. This is The Health Report and I'm Tegan Taylor. While alcohol consumption has dropped in Australia over the past decade, it's still a major driver of disease – But the main tool we have to address risky drinking isn't well used. It's time consuming for GPs and other practitioners who are already stretched. And what's more, there's not great evidence that it even works that well. But with nearly 5% of the total burden of disease in Australia attributable to alcohol, what should we be doing? Dr Chris Holmwood has been looking into this. He's the Director of Clinical Partnerships for Drug and Alcohol Services South Australia. And I spoke to him earlier. So we had Australia's National Alcohol Strategy come out in 2019 and it recommended something called screening and brief interventions to reduce harmful alcohol consumption, which uh, it's a bit of a, a weird term. Can you explain what screening and brief interventions means?
4: Screening and brief interventions is a term that's used to describe asking everybody in a particular population, and so what we're talking about is people attending, say, general practice or emergency departments, asking everybody about their alcohol consumption, so patterns of it, you know, quantity and frequency. As a result of that, people are then stratified into whether they've got a risky drinking or harmful drinking. They are then delivered a sort of brief intervention. So the brief intervention consists of some feedback about their drinking level compared with the rest of the community, harms associated with that drinking, possibly a sort of firm recommendation to decrease their alcohol consumption, and then You provide them with some options for cutting down or ceasing, or if their alcohol consumption is very heavy and dependent referral to specialist services for treatment. So that's
1: the recommendation from the national level, but you've written recently that this is a flawed system. So what sort of evidence is there whether it works? We know that there's some controlled lab experiments that seem to show that it has an impact, but that hasn't really played out so much in real life, has
4: it? There's good research evidence across many countries uh, over a couple of decades that shows that in research settings, screening and brief intervention for populations actually does reduce drinking. But the problem is that it's never really been implemented on a population level in any country, apart from Scotland, where it was implemented as part of a raft of strategies as the uh, Scottish Alcohol Strategy. So Where it's been put in place on a population level, say in Scotland, it was really difficult from their evaluation to work out whether it actually independently had an effect on alcohol consumption in Scotland. I think there are a couple of things. One is that the actual amount of alcohol consumption that's reduced by the screening and brief intervention on a population level is pretty low. And secondly, implementation hasn't ever been great. So in Scotland, they only well, they got to their target, which was about 40 or 45% of the population, but they missed out on young people and they never fully implemented it in uh, antenatal clinics, which were one of their target populations. Problems really in translating research into reality. What about here in
1: Australia? We've had this screening and brief interventions recommendation a couple of years ago. Is it being
4: used? Look, it's not being implemented across Australia in any way. In order to implement it, you know you'd need to invest considerably in assisting general practice or emergency departments or antenatal clinics in actually doing it. It takes time, it takes a little bit of time depending on your frame of reference, but you know a brief intervention takes somewhere between five and fifteen minutes, and uh, you know in the context of a general practice consultation, that's quite a significant increase in time. So the evidence is that where it's been implemented, As soon as you take out the extra resource that you originally put in to get it going, the brief interventions tend to cease. So it's never been implemented in Australia in a sort of systematic basis. And I guess there's a question about whether it ought to be anyway, because the effect on overall population rates of drinking are probably negligible.
1: So the tool we're using, there's not a lot of evidence that it works. We're not really using it that well anyway. What do we have evidence for? What should we be doing?
4: you know, alcohol and drug problems are solved in the boardroom rather than in the clinic generally. And I think, you know, it's, it's sort of policy changes that would make a difference. So for example, um, in Scotland, they introduced um, minimum unit pricing. So it meant that a standard drink would cost a certain amount. And uh, if you increase that minimum pricing, then it's been shown to have an effect on consumption. Reducing the density of liquor outlets, you know, the number of takeaway liquor outlets, uh, if you reduce those, that has an effect of reducing the harms associated with drinking, domestic violence. If you, you know reduce trading hours, there's some evidence that, that will actually work for licensed premises. I mean, increasing the legal drinking age, it's a little bit radical, but there's evidence from the United States where there's differences in legal drinking age between various states that has an effect on harms associated with drinking, um, reducing breath alcohol limits for uh, younger drivers. So not just those with provisional licences, with P-plates, but rather, you know, maybe people under 25 rather than just people on provisional licences. There's pretty robust evidence that those changes make a difference to drinking levels.
1: They would be pretty tough cells in a place like Australia where that's really kind of baked into our culture.
4: Yeah, it would be a difficult sell, And I think, you know, you won't get changes in policy unless there's community demand for it. And, and at the moment, community demand for evidence-based strategies to reduce drinking and reduce alcohol-related harms have actually declined. So you won't get decision-makers making change to policy unless you generate demand from the community. And at the moment in Australia, there's a reduction in support for those sort of strategies that will make a difference to alcohol consumption and alcohol-related harms.
1: So it's really the community that needs to fix our attitudes and sort of focus more on the things that we have evidence for then.
4: It is, yes, but it hasn't been for want of effort by College of GPs, College of Psychiatrists, uh, College of Physicians, um, Public Health Association, the AMA. So all those organisations have had strong policy positions to provide the evidence for government and decision makers to make changes to policy. But we haven't really been successful in transmitting that information and knowledge to the community and generating demand for change, really.
1: Whose role is it to instigate this change in community attitudes? Who has that responsibility? And how do you even achieve something
4: like that? It is the role of professional bodies to make the community aware of what the evidence is. I mean, there are consumer groups as well who have been, you know, adversely affected by alcohol You know, there are leadership groups within the Aboriginal community that are very vocal in this area. You know, alliances really of professional groups as well as leaders within the community. It can't just come from the professional groups. I think there needs to be that sort of leadership from the community itself. I'm not quite sure how you generate those alliances. And I think that's part of the conundrum, really. I think we've been diverted a little bit by the growth in methamphetamine use and harms associated with that. And I think we've taken the ball off alcohol as being a much more significant cause of harms.
1: Dr Chris Holmwood is the Director of Clinical Partnerships for Drug and Alcohol Services, South Australia. Now, most Australians eat twice as much salt as we should. It raises our blood pressure and shortens our lives. And so in in an attempt to address this, the government has just finished a five-year process to create a framework to reduce the amount of sodium in processed food where most excess salt hides. But An analysis from the George Institute has found that it doesn't go far enough and that even if voluntary targets in the framework were fully implemented, they would reduce the sodium in Australian households' uh, packaged foods by just 3.5%. Daisy Coyle was the lead author of this paper. Welcome, Daisy.
5: Hi, Tegan. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: So the main source of excess sodiums in processed foods, like we said, why is regulation necessary? Can't we just tell people to eat less salt?
5: We can help people eat less salt um, and that's, that's a strategy so we can, we can do that and that's a part of a consumer awareness campaign that we can do but the onus is also on food companies so as a part of that we can have reformulation which means that uh, food companies are reducing the amount of salt in their products and it means it, it can help to create a level playing field across companies. So when we go to the supermarket and shop, we know that we're not going to sort of get tricked by picking up a product that's got twice as much salt compared to the one next to it. So we do need a mix of policies there. So we need reformulation alongside consumer awareness campaigns, alongside targeting other aspects of the food supply that it c- contribute to our salt intakes, like uh, takeaway and restaurant foods.
1: Right, so just relying on people to, to put the onus back on them to reduce it isn't enough. So we're looking at reformulating as part of that framework. Um, is, it, is it possible? Do, have other countries had success with this?
5: Yeah, they have. So the UK is kind of the world leader in reformulation. They've had salt targets since 2006 and every few years they update the targets and they make the targets progressively lower and they add more targets. They've lost a little bit of momentum in recent years, which shows you, you know, you, you can't take half measures at all. You need to sort of constantly be applying pressure on food companies. But they did get a 15% reduction to their salt intakes quite a few years ago. So it shows that reformulation targets can work, but you just need to keep applying pressure to food companies to comply
1: can we talk a bit more about what the UK has done? Because it feels like big manufacturing companies making processed food, it, it would be a, a big ship to try to turn. Um, can you talk a bit more about the the strategies that they've used there and, and how they've been so successful?
5: So um, I guess one of the main reasons why they've been so successful is that they've had the targets for a long time. And They're gradual targets, so they sort of didn't say to food companies back in the day, "Oh, this is what you need to achieve." And all food companies sort of panic and go, "How are we going to cut salt intakes, cut the salt salt content to these levels?" It's been very gradual. So that's one thing that they've done very well. Another thing that they've done really well is that they've got targets across a whole range of food categories. So you sort of you're sort of like sharing the load a bit. So you're not just putting. But in Australia, we've got targets for 27 food categories, whereas in the UK, you've got targets for 80 food categories. So you're targeting a much broader range of the food supply. And they also target restaurant and takeaway foods. So it's kind of creates, I guess, a shift across the whole of the food supply. Um, And with some of their uh, monitoring programs in the past, they've Sort of named and shamed companies that haven't done well and praised those that have, and that creates another incentives for food companies because they don't want to look bad. They want to look like the companies that are taking action and are, and are leading the, the way for salt reduction.
1: Is there a risk for companies cutting salt in their foods if no one else is doing it? Are they worried that their food's going to taste bad?
5: Yeah, perhaps they might think that, but um, we don't have any observational studies in Australia that have looked at this, but other companies, uh, other countries in the world have done some studies and it's shown that when reformulation is gradual, that most people don't even notice the taste changes. And reformulation happens quite a lot, actually. So say if you've got a, a, a packaged processed food that has ingredients that, that they source from different areas to create a food, if they change sort of the... This, this, Flour supplier or the supplier for the chocolate that goes into a product, a company is reformulating. That's exactly what they're doing. Um, So, yeah, food companies, I, I don't think, should be too concerned about the impact on sales.
1: So, obviously, this framework is about getting food manufacturers to reduce salt in food. And as we heard earlier, there's good health reasons for that. So, if Australians want to eat healthier, what are some actions that they can take themselves briefly? Yeah, sure. So salt's hidden in processed
5: and packaged foods. So first thing, try and reduce your intake of those foods and focus on whole foods. Look out for low salt labels when you're shopping and flip over the products and have a look at the nutrition information panel. Look out for products that have a sodium content of 400 milligrams per 100 grams and try to cut the amount of salt you add when you're cooking and uh, try to stop adding salt to the table make use of pepper, fresh and dried herbs, even garlic, onion, olive oil, and use cooking cooking methods that can help to retain flavour. So, for example, roasting instead of boiling vegetables.
1: Daisy, thank you so much for joining us on The Health Report. Thanks very much for having me. Daisy Coyle is an accredited practicing dietitian and a PhD candidate at the George Institute. And joining us for our podcast-only mailbag section tonight is James Bullen, health producer and reporter at the ABC. Hello,
0: James. Hey, Tiggs. How's it going?
1: Good. Do you eat twice as much of the sodium as you should?
0: I do think I probably do tend to eat a bit <laughs> more sodium than I should, but usually in cooking. So maybe that makes it a little less bad.
1: You justify it however you like. Uh. Mate. <laughs> We've got plenty of questions from our audience tonight, so I'm going to throw one at you first. Um, Yvonne is asking, what sports are the most healthy uh, that is best at keeping you fit and giving you a long life?
0: Mm. I think in the past on the health report, we've had people on that have always said that the thing that is best for you is the sport that you're going to keep on doing, the sport that you enjoy, the sport that is affordable and accessible for you because it means that you're going to maintain that sport long-term and maintain the fitness that comes with it. So I guess... That's kind of the number one piece of advice. But I also did a story a few years back which kind of goes to this point, which was really fascinating. It was around, yeah, looking at sports and longevity, which sports tend to lead to the longest life. And what they found in that study, which from memory I think was mostly in Scandinavian countries, was that bizarrely racket sports, so things like tennis particularly, but also badminton, seem to lead to people having the longest life years of life, living the longest, and then other sports such as soccer, I think soccer was on the list, and then further down the list were things like running and going to the gym were on there too, and the reason they came up with for why tennis, badminton, as well as soccer and other sort of team sports were at the top was because they were team sports, because there was this social element to them as well as the fitness element, which it seems to be quite important as we've come to learn in dementia research in terms of keeping your brain healthy and keeping your cognition good is being able to socialise with people, meet new people and chat to them and form relationships with them. And I'm sure it doesn't hurt with continuing sports as well if you've got a group that you do it with. So I suppose tennis seems to be up there uh, and, yeah, it led to the longest years of life in this particular study. And they also did control for things like wealth and education and things like that though tennis is also sometimes known as a sport that more well-off people tend to do so maybe there's some things that they weren't able to control for in that study.
1: I wonder if there's also a link between the sorts of sports that you might might be likely to get injured in. Like soccer is a pretty tough sport on your body. Maybe you're not likely to keep playing that as you get older because of the risk of injury.
0: Mm, yeah, I reckon that's, that's definitely a part of it as well. And one of the people that I interviewed, it was for a health report story about three years ago, was a man who'd been at the Marrickville Tennis Club in Sydney for 70 years, I think, if I remember rightly. So he started playing when he was 20 and he was 90 years old and he was still playing tennis which is quite amazing (laughs) what a legend you need to look
1: him up and see if he's still out there playing tennis (laughs) yeah
0: i hope so i hope so and and tegan another story we've got in the mailbag is from carol and she asks i have read that eating and sleeping at really regular and predictable times allows the body to concentrate on other central tasks such as stress reduction inflammation and other risk factors for disease because the body does not need to be constantly on alert. Is that true? What's kind of going on there?
1: It's pretty interesting. The idea of the body clock is so popular that you could almost be forgiven for thinking it's pseudoscience, but it's not. There's actually quite a lot of really interesting research that's been done into this, and it has to do with... Well, people probably have heard of the circadian rhythm, which is basically that your body has a natural 24-hour cycle and it sort of does different parts of its body jobs, according to that cycle. So when you're asleep, there's repair jobs that your body does. And when you're awake, there's metabolizing jobs that your body does. And because humans are diurnal, as in not nocturnal, when your light hits your face in the morning, that's a signal to your body that it's wake up and metabolize food time. And so the reason why this can become a problem is that if you're a shift worker and you're eating a lot at night or you're really active at night and you're sleeping during the day you're still getting that light cue in your body to say get up metabolize food do this and that and that that nighttime cycle where you rest and repair is can get out of whack. And so we do know that um, it's not in like it's inevitable that some people just don't have the choice to sleep when it's dark and be awake and feeding when it's light because people work shifts or they're new parents or they just really love watching TV at night. Uh, but there are there is research that shows that the, that sort of behavior can lead to negative health effects down the track. And it can also interrupt your ability to then sleep when it's sleeping time. And so the experts that I spoke to for a story of like about this a couple of months ago, same as you, James, was that it's, it's important to live in harmony with the Earth's natural cycles if you can, but not let your life be ruled by it because it's only one factor in a really large number of factors that impact on our health so yeah if you can sleep at night time eat at regular times of day there do seem to be health benefits associated with that but it's certainly not the only predictor of your health and well-being in your life
0: Mm. and are there things you can do to kind of encourage a normal rhythm like I've read about I know there's melatonin that some people use to kind of take at night and help them sleep and I'm sure there's other things as well
1: I wouldn't want to speak directly to pharmaceutical benefits, Mm. but the sorts of tips that the experts gave me when I spoke to them were, if you're going to have a disrupted circadian rhythm, you need to optimise everything else in your life to offset that. And so that's things like eating a healthy diet, eating at roughly the same time each day, even if you're working different shifts, regular exercise, like you said before, and avoiding alcohol. And the point that they made there was that alcohol wrecks sleep and you think that it's going to make you rest, but it actually disrupts the, the natural rhythm of your sleep when you're sleeping. And it can also exacerbate um, sleep disorders like obstructive sleep apnea. Wow. All right, it's my turn to ask you a question now again, James. Vince is asking, uh, he's seen a trend that these days people carry their water bottles with them wherever they go. Do you really need to be sipping water constantly throughout the day? How much water does your body actually need each day?
0: So I think the answer here, like with a lot of health questions, is it kind of depends. And I I tried to work out where this. Idea came from of like needing to drink water all the time, and it seems like in well, the eight US, eight glasses a
1: day was sort of like a, that. Still is, I think, a really kind of urban wisdom, at least.
0: Yeah, and it's it's not that far off from what the actual recommendations are, which is quite amusing, I find. Because yeah, the eight glasses a day kind of is everywhere, but it's in the ballpark for the real recommendation. Australia has these things called nutrient reference values, which are recommendations for our nutritional intake based on the latest science, and they get updated every few years. And they recommend that the typical adult man take in 2.6 litres of fluids, which is about 10 cups of fluid a day, and the typical adult woman take in 2.1 litres, or about 8 cups. And I guess the key thing there is that That's all fluids. It doesn't just have to be water and it can include milk, coffee, tea. All of those things are hydrating.
1: Because you do hear sometimes people saying, oh, coffee dehydrates you or caffeine dehydrates you somehow.
0: Mm. I think it depends on how much you have. And I know that the story with alcohol is quite complex as well in that certain types of alcohol can be not so so bad for your hydration so things like beer there's a lot of water in it as long as you're not having too much they can actually be hydrating as well whereas things like spirits or shots or anything like that that tends to be much more dehydrating much faster
1: so what's the verdict the australian nutrient reference guides did i say it right they're saying about eight cups for most adults is about the right amount
0: yeah the urban myth the urban legend is in the ballpark well here we go (laughs) And, Teagues, we've got one last question in the mailbag from Ange, and they ask, What makes a so-called superfood like acai and goji berries super, and are they worth my money?
1: Well, I hate to break it to your kids, but the technical definition of a superfood is nothing. There is no technical definition. It's a marketing term, but it, it is one that has taken hold. And I think that when people hear the word superfood, even though it might not have a clinical definition, there's definitely uh, an accepted wisdom around what it means. And there was actually someone who did their PhD research about Australians' attitudes to superfoods, which sounds... Fascinating. And she said that it's this idea that it's a food that has maybe a high level of some kind of something that we think of being beneficial, like antioxidants, but it's not just high in antioxidants. There's also this sort of mythology around it that perhaps it's a traditional food from. A, something that's a place that people might consider to be exotic. So acai is from South America and there's this sense that these people who are living in harmony with nature are nourishing their bodies with this food and that it plays into this idea that we are disenchanted with the modern lifestyle and how damaging it is for our health. Um, That's sort of the idea that kind of plays into this idea of having superfood as something that might be healing you. And so even though most people would think of a superfood as having maybe a higher nutrient density than another food, it doesn't. Necessarily, And so there's been studies that have looked into antioxidants because that's especially something that is in a lot of these foods that are claimed to be superfoods. And uh, acai, I'm not going to like bags acai too much because I actually really enjoy it, but it's expensive and it has about the same amount of vitamin C in it as applesauce. And so apples are a lot cheaper generally than acai. And so one of the problems with the idea of a superfood is that the nutritionist that I spoke to recently about this was saying it compounds this idea that you have to spend a lot of money to eat a healthy diet and you don't. Fresh fruit and vegetables are not typically very expensive and you're going to get just as much nutrient value out of something that's already in your crisper drawer that you bought for three or four bucks a kilo than you are by going to a fancy health food shop and spending a lot of money on something that's come from the other side of the world. That's not to say that those things aren't delicious and can't nourish you, but you don't need to have them to have a healthy diet. Mm.
0: Power of marketing. Though there's, yeah, (laughs) Asai smoothies are delicious.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. Well, that's all that we've got in the mailbag for this week. But if you want to send us a question, you can email us healthreport at Thanks, James, so much for stepping in this week.
0: Thanks, Teegs. And Norman will be back next week. We'll see you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast.